0: Do you struggle to fit all the words in that music? That's good, because we struggle to say all the wonderful things that are true about God when we gather together. It reminds us. Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 11. Leviticus, chapter 11, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read uh, verse 44 in just a second, but uh, for now, I want you to turn there to Leviticus 11. I know that this is the beginning of a uh, football season, but I want to think with you for just a moment about basketball. Um, if you listen in on any conversation about the NBA and this season's prospects, you're likely to hear some common names, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, uh, Blake Griffin. I remember the period of time, though, when there seemed to be only one name in that discussion. That name was Michael Jordan. Uh, You can look at the record books to find out about his accomplishments. But I wonder if you remember about uh, Michael Jordan's presence off the court. Uh, He was everywhere. On television, he was telling you to eat at McDonald's. In the movie theater, he was starring with Bugs Bunny in a movie, uh, a hybrid live-action animated movie. At the shoe store, his silhouette decorated Nike Jordan sneakers. And uh, Gatorade launched what became an enduring part of the, uh, the culture. Gatorade uh, taught us that it is okay to say, I want to be like Mike. Uh, it was the name of a movie. It was the name of a song. It's a YouTube theme. Uh, at the time, it was the aspiration of kids who played basketball. I want to be like Mike. Now, I usually don't do this, but I'm going to show you one of those commercials this morning, uh, taking you back far. It's only 60 seconds. We'll leave the house lights on. I'll turn these lights off and move the, the uh, uh, podium. And uh, this, maybe some of you who are of age will remember this. See he- guarantee is if you drink Gatorade, you can do all those things. <laughs> uh, you may not have many dreams about basketball, but you know what this sort of emulation that they were plugging into is like. Uh, if you're pursuing a skill, you, if you really care about how well you do something, you know at least one person that you want to be like. Um, it, this is how human beings operate. Maybe uh, you want to be a writer, so you pick someone. Hemingway, Anne Lamott, T.S. Eliot, Marilyn Robinson, and you want to write like they do. Uh, maybe it's something smaller. You want to change your style of clothes so you see somebody and you're like, I want to dress like that person dresses. Uh, I listen to preachers and I sometimes l- finish listening to their sermons and I want to say, I want to preach like him. Uh, Do you remember, some of you remember Lois Johnson. Lois Johnson is a member of our church. She's not able to attend anymore. But if you know her, you remember her as a gracious, gracious woman. Uh, She was warm. She was hospitable. She was the uh, epitome of a woman who worked really diligently to honor her husband during a long period of, of his decline. And while uh, Lois was attending regularly, I heard a number of people in our church, a number of women in our church say, when I grow up, I want to be like Lois Johnson. I want to be like Lois. (laughs) It doesn't rhyme quite as well. Your Bible is open to a a passage of scripture that commends emulation and its cousin imitation to us. But it's not the imitation or the emulation of another human being, but of God himself. Look at Leviticus 11 verse 44. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. Now, this call to imitate the Lord's holiness might not strike you with much force. It certainly doesn't leap off the page like Michael Jordan. It's not as catchy as being like Mike. But, but you have to realize the person who is saying this And he makes this explicit. I am the God who rescued you out of Egypt. Be like me. The God who's speaking here is the God who defeated all of the gods and all of the powers of Egypt. He drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. He allowed his people Israel to plunder the Egyptians. One day they were slaves and the next day they were marching off out of the nation carrying its gold and jewels and fine fabric, its wealth. This is the God who descended on Mount Sinai in this cloud of glory and whose glory filled the tabernacle. He's the God who is totally unique. He's in a class by himself of all the deities they knew about. And he's the God who bound them himself to these people by covenant. And here he says, I want you to be like me. Do you remember the scenes? They were all over uh, commercials for the NBA. Maybe, maybe you remember them. Uh, Michael Jordan would leap from what appeared to be the foul line, and, and he would fly through the air, slow motion. He'd fly through the air. You could see the unique posture of his body. You could see his tongue hanging out. He was flying through the air, heading to the basket, and the arena, as he flies, would be filled with camera flashes. You could see them all individually when he was in this slow motion. And he'd slam the ball down in the basket, and the crowd would go wild. Do you remember those those scenes, those advertising scenes? Exodus has just uncovered this God. The flashes of his glory and his power are stunning. And if you're reading properly, you pick up the Bible and you say, I want to be like that. Followers of Jesus Christ have the same reaction when we read about the Savior in the Gospels. I, I want to speak ...with the wisdom that that man has. I want to respond with his sort of compassion. I want to confront with the clarity that he confronts people. I want to comfort people with that sort of gentleness. Now, it's strange for you to hear this, perhaps, and it will become increasingly strange, I think, as we read it. But Leviticus chapter 11 is a passage of Scripture that focuses our attention... ...on one of the ways that people are to strive to be holy like God... And the reason that this is strange is because this is about food, about what the Israelites could and could not eat. Uh, And and I'm going to read this chapter. We're going to read this chapter this morning. I debated about whether or not to do it as a long passage of scripture of laws, but it's good to be heard. We've read a lot of God's word today. Uh, That's okay. It's the only perfect thing you'll ever you'll hear me say. Right? So uh, follow along. Don't drift. Follow along and ask the questions in your mind and and hang a hook on them as, as we go through the questions that you have about this unusual foreign passage to us. If you've ever read through the Bible that with a goal that was a good thing, this is one of the chapters that makes you wonder why you're doing that. All right. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. Hear what Holy Scripture says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, for example, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof, it is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cut. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Now of all the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any, any that have fins and scales. But all creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the other living things in the water, you are to regard as unclean. And since you are to regard them as unclean, you must not eat their meat. You must regard their carcasses as unclean. Anything living in the water that does not have fins and scales is to be regarded as unclean by you. These are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, The little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. Now, I should stop here and say, uh, because these words are very uncommon in ancient Hebrew, we're not sure exactly all of the animals that are being referred to here. In fact, one Hebrew scholar says we we know for certain only about 40% of these animals. So... Perhaps the people could have eaten vultures but not condors, but we don't know. Let's keep going. Verse 20. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat, those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground. Of these you may eat any kind of locust. <laughs> That's a relief. Katydid, cricket or grasshopper. But all other flying insects that have four legs you are to regard as unclean. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) You will make yourselves unclean by these. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up one of their carcasses must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Every animal that does not have a divided hoof or that does not chew the cud is unclean for you. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. Of all the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their paws... I wonder if your translation says hand. That would be okay if it did. We'll talk about why in a minute. Of all the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their hands are unclean for you. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up their carcasses must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. These animals are unclean for you. Of the animals that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. The weasel, the rat, any kind of great lizard, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the wall lizard, the skink, and the chameleon. Of all these that move along the ground, these are unclean for you. Whoever touches them when they are dead will be unclean till evening. Ah, the they there refers to the animals, not the person. Okay, that's all right. Verse 32. When one of them dies and falls on something, that article, whatever its use, will be unclean. Whether it is made of wood, cloth, hide, or sackcloth, put it in water, it will be unclean till evening, and then it will be clean. If one of them falls, one of those unclean swarming little creatures, falls into a clay pot, everything in it will be unclean and you must break the pot. Any food you are allowed to eat that has come into contact with water from any such pot is unclean and any liquid that is drunk from such a pot is unclean. Anything that one of the carcasses falls on becomes unclean. An oven or cooking pot must be broken up. They are unclean and you are to regard them as unclean. A spring, however, or a cistern for collecting water remains clean, but anyone who touches one of these carcasses is unclean. If a carcass falls on any seeds that are to be planted, they remain clean. But if seed has been put on the seed, but if water has been put on the seed and a carcass falls on it, it is unclean for you. What's the difference? Water on a seed means you're going to cook it, probably. Water not on a seed means you're going to plant it. So if it's going to become food and a rat falls on it, it's unclean. Verse 39, if an animal that you are allowed to eat dies, anyone who touches its carcass will be unclean till evening. Anyone who eats some of its carcass must wash their clothes so they will be, and they will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up the carcass must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean, snakes on the ground. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. It is unclean. (laughs) Centipedes. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or by be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves along the, about in the ground, water and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Oh, wow. This is about food. This is about food that are clean and unclean. These are the foods to eat. And foods to avoid so that you can be ritually pure. These are the taboo foods. Uh, if you eat these unclean foods and are unclean, you cannot worship in the tabernacle. That's the issue. Uh, but more importantly here, your avoidance, more importantly, your avoidance of these foods in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is one of the ways that you can be like God. You can be holy by avoiding these foods. Now, how? Now, let me say before, before we proceed here anymore, that anyone who reads the Bible knows, uh, without much difficulty, it's not hard to find, that these rules are eventually abolished. They're uh, particular rules for a particular period of time for the nation of Israel. They were temporary provisions for them. Now, sometimes, and I mentioned this last week, we're criticized because of our devotion to scripture. This particularly comes up in, when we talk about the Bible's prohibitions against homosexuality. And we quote verses from Leviticus. And sometimes our critics say to us, you don't obey all of the Bible yourself. You pick those laws about sex because of your hang-ups, but you ignore the rest of the Bible that you say you obey. Do you eat bacon? Do you eat shellfish? You've just picked the parts of the Bible that you like. And that criticism comes. And that criticism, I think, is, is very simple. The Bible, like all good stories, develops... And some things change and some things don't change. Not everything changes, but some things change. It's a story. Um, Some of you are, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. It became a a Broadway musical and it's been filmed several times. Um, I, I read that book when I was in high school and I was really pleased because it was 800 pages. It was the longest book I'd ever read. And then I found out it was The Abridgment. And I thought to myself, if you can't get it said in 800 pages, you should stop. But um, that's not true in literature. I, I know that. Um, at, at the beginning of the novel, towards the beginning of the novel, there's a little girl named Cosette. And uh, towards the end of the novel, she's about to get married. No one has ever vi- uh, uh, accused Victor Hugo of believing that children should be married. Nobody's ever come up to see That's a terrible novel. There's a little girl that gets married in that novel. You, you say to them, no. There's a story. She grows up in the book. Haven't you read the rest of the book? Oh, the Bible's a story. Things develop. Some things change, some things don't change. People who make that accusation, what they are really testifying to the fact is that they don't know what they're talking about. They haven't read the rest of the story. They haven't read the rest of the story. Now, what might be a good question to ask is, why did these rules change? Why were some things unclean and then they became clean? Or why, even more fundamentally, why were these rules imposed in the first place? And what could they possibly have to do with being holy like God? Why does God care if we eat pork chops or not? What what, how, what does that have to do with being holy? And since there are rules that we don't have to live by today, what could we possibly learn from these things? Uh, Gordon Wenham does a great job summarizing, I think, what is here. I'm going to read his summary of Leviticus 11. This should ring some bells to you. Uh, I'll just read his seven points quickly. Don't write these down if you want them later. I'll give them to you. Number one, cloven-hoofed, cud-chewing land animals may be eaten. Other mammals are unclean and may not be eaten. Number two, only fish which have fins and scales may be eaten. Number three, certain named birds, birds of prey, may not be eaten. Number four, flying insects may not be eaten, but hopping insects are edible. Number five, touching the carcass of an unclean animal makes a person unclean. He must wash himself. So you can have unclean animals around you, but if they die, touching their carcass makes you unclean. Number six, other swarming animals such as mice and lizards are also unclean. If they are found dead inside a vessel, the vessel becomes unclean and must be destroyed or purified. Certainly you've you've had that experience sometime in your life. You've opened a container, oh, there's an animal in here, and it's unclean. You throw the food away. Um, number 7, clean animals that die of natural causes become unclean, unfit to eat and a source of pollution. So you can eat cows, but if your cow dies of old age in the field, it's unclean. Don't eat it. Now, what's behind these rules? Jewish and Christian scholars have looked at this passage for years, trying to figure out any patterns or what is God thinking or why is what's here? I want to share with you some proposals. First, I want to share with you some unhelpful proposals, and then I want to share with you some suggestions perhaps about why they are here like this. Alright? First, some people think here that the issue here is health. God wants his people to be healthy, so he forbids certain foods. Uh, pigs carry trichinosis. The seafood that doesn't have uh, scales or uh, fins, uh, they, they, they're mud dwellers and they pick up parasites. So God, the theory goes, is trying to protect his people uh, and keep them healthy. Some Christian teachers still advocate this. I have heard uh, well-known preachers who stand and say, you should, you should live this way uh, because God wants you to be healthier. The problem with that idea is, um, if God is so concerned about our health, why did Jesus declare these animals clean in the Gospels? <laughs> is Jesus not concerned about our health anymore? Hmm. Well, some people read this. Now, secondly, here, some people read this and think about pagan religion, that, that some of these unclean animals mentioned here are particularly associated with the pagan religion of the Canaanites. And and the Israelites are supposed to avoid these animals so they don't get entangled in that pagan religion. For example, archaeologists have found a lot of pig bones near the site of ancient worship altars. And the thinking is that they, the Canaanites perhaps in particular like to sacrifice pigs. So God says, get rid of your pigs and you won't be tempted to sacrifice like the Canaanites. The problem with this idea is that one of the most common animals in all of pagan religion is a bull, and bulls are clean. You can eat them. Hmm. Well, third, some people give up any hope of finding a solution here, and they say that the rules are arbitrary. God is just making this up. He's just testing them. God uh, wants to see about your ability to navigate through this unpredictable minefield. Can I eat this? Can I eat this? I don't know. What's the book say? The problem with that is, is God doesn't set arbitrary things before us. He, he's not into playing games like that with his people. Well, here's, here's a final less than helpful suggestion. The, the idea that these animals have to do, it's all symbolism. This is symbolic. It's not about health, it's not about pagan religion, it's not arbitrary, it's, it's symbolic. This is a very allegorical interpretation of the Bible, but it shows up a lot. Uh, animals that chew the cud, well, chewing the cud is kind of like meditation, and we should meditate on the Bible so you can eat cud-chewing animals. Or uh, pigs wallow in mud like sinners wallow in sin, so avoid pigs. Now, the problem with that is It's just kind of from dreamland. There's nothing in the text that suggests this as a reason. So I ask again, what is happening here? If I think that we should let verses 44 and 45 control how we read this passage. This is a passage about being holy like God. And there is a pattern here in this text that reflects to and points to God's holy character. And I want to uncover what that is, what that was for the Israelites and what it means for us. I think in creating these categories, what God is doing is he is deepening and, and, and broadening their understanding of what holiness is. So that by avoiding these foods, they're living out patterns that should reflect the holiness with, that God has called them to. Uh, let, let me show you here some values, I think, that arise from these patterns that are established here in this chapter. And it's the first value, the first principle here is, is wholeness. Wholeness. Now let me explain. I wondered if you noticed as I, as I read this chapter that Leviticus 11 actually follows the pattern of Genesis 1. Did you notice that? Genesis 1 divides the known animal kingdom into three large groups. This is not the way we divide the animal kingdom, but Genesis 1 does. There are land animals... There are water animals and there are sky animals. That's why bats are mentioned with the sky animals. They're mammals, right? That's the way we think about animals about bats. If we don't think that we want them gone, but we think about them as as mammals, we associate them more with mice. But they're they're sky animals. That's how how Genesis uh, divides Genesis one divides the world. Uh, and it seems that one of the ways in this passage that you can tell that an animal is clean or unclean is how the animal moves within its sphere. Clean animals have to move like a normal land, sea, or water animal moves. I remember that the word clean doesn't mean dirt free. It means normal, healthy, standard, whole. For example, hooves are made for walking on land. They're perfect for walking on land. But if there is an animal that walks on its paws, that's unclean because they're, these are, they're like hands. And that's not normal for walking on land. Or maybe it's easier to see in the sea. In the sea, clean animals, normal animals have fins and scales. That's how normal sea creatures move. Uh, there are insects that fly, but most of the creatures of the air, most of the birds, have two wings to fly and two legs to hop. So if you fly but you don't hop, you're unclean because most of the animals that fly hop. So if you're going to fly, you've got to hop in order to be clean. If you fly and you don't hop, you crawl, then you're not clean. There, there's got to be wholeness. There's got to be conformity. There must be... Uh, 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 Met, uh, it's got to match how you move is got to match the sphere in which you live, the normal, the normal locomotion of where you live. Uh, swarming animals are unclean, too. Why? Because swarming is haphazard, it's directionless, it's aimless. Unclean animals blur the boundaries. If you're in the sea but you don't have scales, you're unclean. If you're on the land but you walk on your hands, you're unclean. If you're in the air but you don't hop on the ground, you're unclean. Holiness here points toward uh, wholeness. Wholeness. There should be a consistency, a matching. Now I think I want to apply this principle in a couple of broad ways. First, this principle of wholeness as an aspect of holiness, it confronts our natural condition. It confronts our natural condition. Human beings, as they are born now in this world, are not whole. Does everything in your life match perfectly? Is is there consistent quality and virtue in everything that you do? Probably not. Some of you are really good friends. Like you have the skills of friendship down really well. You're loyal, you're compassionate, you're wise, but you're not a very good employee. Others of you, your work is excellent. Your work bears all the marks of dedication and fidelity and skill, but you cheat on your family. Or maybe your car is in excellent shape. It's clean, it's maintained, it's guarded, but your finances are a mess. You can't maintain a friendship to save your life. Everyone here is some combination of wonderful virtue and grave brokenness. You're not whole. Here's another way to think about this. Um, The Bible tells us that God has made us in his image. And like a perfect mirror, we were made to reflect God. You look in the mirror and you see God's attributes and God's characteristics. But as we are right now, uh, the mirror is cracked. We're broken. What do you see when you look in a cracked mirror? The mere uh, pieces misalign themselves and they bend in and out as they crack and, and the image isn't whole. You can see parts of it, but it's not right. That's one of the things, one of the ways that the Bible describes us as sinners. We're piecemeal. We're, we're broken. We're not whole. We are those whose lives are cracked. You don't measure up to the standard of wholeness, which is a part of holiness. Naturally. So this confronts our natural condition. We're like sea creatures that don't have fins and scales. We're like land animals that don't have hooves. Now, the passage confronts our, our natural condition, but it also calls us to deeper holiness. It calls us to deeper holiness. And the emphasis here in this passage is on your whole life. Your whole life should correspond to the God who is holy. I mean, just think about here, this passage is about food. Is there anything more mundane, more ordinary, more a part of your daily life than food? Holiness is to extend throughout your life. It's to be wide, but it's also to be deep. Everything you do and think and say is supposed to match what you believe. There is to be a wholeness in your life. There is a holy way to eat. Is there a holy way to comb your hair? Uh, Is there a holy way to go to school? Is there a holy way to date your boyfriend, to play golf? Is there a holy way to speak to your parents? Christians are those who have recognized their unwholeness, but we are also at the same time, we're in the pursuit of the holy God, and that changes the way that we think about combing hair and playing golf and going to school and speaking to parents. Not that that we go look for, for, for Christian combs, or Christian golf clubs, or uh, 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 Christian um, uh, dating ideas. That, that's, that, that's not, we're not trying to baptize everything with a Bible verse that so we can print on it at Oriental Trading Company. Um, instead, uh, we are the ones who recognize that the holiness that God calls us to pervades all of life, and we think about all those things in a, in a holy way. What does it mean to play golf in a holy way? to go to school in a holy way. There's no passes that are allowed here. No areas of your life in which you come before God and you say, God, I've been good all day. I deserve this break right now, and I'm going to take it. God, I, I, I'm, I'm righteous in so many ways. I don't sin like other people do. I just need this one thing, God. Just this one thing. Let me have and 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 I'll, everything else you can have. Just this one One part of my my life, think about this, I I wonder how how you'd finish this sentence. The area of my life in which I am most inclined to give myself a pass is, how how would you finish that sentence? Those who want to be holy have to pursue wholeness. Now, here's the second value, number two, delight, delight. Delight is a mark of holiness, joy, satisfaction with God's grace. Now, in addition to focusing our attention here on God's creative ordering, it seems like Leviticus, the other thing that it does is it divides the animal kingdom into three categories. The whole book of Leviticus does this, doesn't it? There are unclean animals, there are clean animals that you can eat, and then there are sacrificial animals, those three categories. You could not sacrifice an unholy animal. Uh, you could uh, an unclean animal, uh, and um, you, you couldn't even sacrifice just a clean animal. It had to be a sacrificial, specific, holy animal. Uh, I wonder here if God is. This is reminiscent of how God has divided the human world in the Old Testament. There are Gentiles that are excluded from the nation. There are Jewish people who may worship God in the tabernacle. They're clean. And then there are priests who have the opportunity to offer sacrifices. Just as God has chosen Israel from among all the nations and selected them for his special work, so the Israelites now have an opportunity to choose for themselves. They're to eat only their specific animals. This is, they're like God. God chose us. He was selective, and now we're going to be like him, and we're going to be selective too. What that means is is when you read Leviticus 11, you're not supposed to read it and say, "Oh, these poor people, they couldn't eat all these good things. Oh. That's not how you're supposed to read the passage. You're supposed to read the passage, and they were supposed to read the passage, and say, God chose us. He's picked us. Huh. I'm, I'm going to choose to just like him because eating these foods is, is a way for them to celebrate and remember and mark off the fact that they're specially chosen God's people. This, this is a, a source of delight. They say no to all these unclean foods as a reminder to the, the good position, the graciousness of God in making them his holy people. I wonder if your discernment is joyful too. If If... You're committed to whole life holiness. What goes through your mind when you are tempted? There's something you want, something I want to have and you know it's not beneficial. Do you feel that restriction? Do you feel when God says no to something, do you feel that as a sign that God is trying to ruin your happiness or provide for your happiness? What do you think about in those moments? Um, your kids are different from mine. My kids have different interests than yours. My kids like to read, and we go to the library a lot. We usually check out 40 or 50 books. It lasts us a couple weeks, and we go back. Um, we spend a lot of time in the children's section of the library. And as we were leaving the library last week, we passed the section of books, the new books, in the young adult section of books. There's books for teenagers. And I said to Claire as we were walking by the young adult section of books, I said to her, oh, Claire, what are we going to do? What am I going to have you read when you outgrow the children's section? You may not know this. You should know this if you have teenage children, but the young adult section of the bookstore or library is the cesspool of the publishing world. Um, the, the books are filled with inappropriate sexuality and are the are celebration of evil, dysfunctional families, teenage rebellion. Uh, if you let your children, I'll say this, if you let your children read anything by Stephanie Meyer, you're a fool. There's, there's almost nothing redeeming in these books. Uh, so for the next several years, we're going to go to the library, and I'm going to be saying no a lot. No, you can't read that. No, put that back in the shelf. No, I'm sorry. How about this? No, you can't read that. I'm doing that a lot. How, how am I going to do it? How do you say no to your kids when they ask you to watch or read or play something that's not edifying? How do you say no to yourself? Do you say no to yourself uh, or no to your kids because God is the celestial killjoy who's trying to ruin your life? Or or, or do you say no to them in, in a way that communicates to them that God is a good father who God gives us good gifts and guides us and warns us for our protection and for our joy? I hope you say no, I hope it's true of me, that I say no like Paul taught us to say no. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no. It's the kindness of God that teaches us to turn our backs on on ungodliness and wickedness and brokenness in this world. It's the Lord Jesus who said, I have come that you might have life. The thief who's come to steal and kill, destroy. I've not come to steal anything from you. I've not come to kill your joy. I've not come to destroy you. I've come to give you life. Abundant life. When you, choose, when you choose wholeness, holy people choose for the sake of joy, for delight. All right, finally, being like God, like God is holy is a matter of separation, separation. Now, that word separation is, is closely related to what holy means. Some of these food choices, some of it has to do with the way the animals move. Some of it has to do with, with uh, uh, reflecting God's ordering of, of humanity. Uh, and some have to do with separating them. First, I think maybe separating them from the consequences of sin in this broken world. Now, remember, we read Genesis 1 a few, weeks, a few moments ago. Uh, how are human beings supposed to live? As God designed it, animals and human beings were supposed to live by eating plants. We were not meant to eat one another. And carnivorous animals eat other plants. Eat other pe- uh, people. Eat other animals. It's got to come eventually. Carnivorous animals kill other animals in order to survive, and they eat blood indiscriminately. And, and so, don't eat animals like that. Don't eat carnivores that eat blood. That's a sign of the broken condition of the world. The Israelites are to separate themselves from eating carnivores, from from this brokenness of the world. Holiness means that, that we don't revel in or benefit from or celebrate or affirm the brokenness that's in the world. We're not entertained by it. We don't delight in it. So something that brings us joy. I don't know if this is an appropriate application of this principle or not. It it maybe is, it may be, and if it is, it's just one among many. You you can think about it. Uh, there are many Christians who are highly entertained by the sport known as mixed martial arts. They like to watch it and cheer for it, and they have their favorite competitors. Is watching it reveling in the brokenness of the world? Wow, look at how he hit him. That's awesome. How great that kick was. Is it celebrating that violence that God did not intend for entertainment? Well, you can think about that and argue with me later if you want. There's separation from sin. There is also separation from, and I can't come up with a better word, so I'm going to say this, dangerous people, dangerous people. If I could think of a better word that means people who are going to influence you negatively, I would use that word. Uh, flip over with me to Leviticus chapter 20. I want to show you something from Leviticus chapter 20. Now, uh, the Israelites have moved in to the Canaanite area where they don't worship the one true God. And look what he says to them in Leviticus chapter 20, verse um, 22 is where I'm going to start. Leviticus 20, verse 22. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. (laughs) You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive you out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I have said to you, you will possess their land. I will give to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. That's the principle. Don't be influenced by these pagan people. Verse 25, now look what he goes to next. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Why does he go in Leviticus immediately from a warning about the people to the food? I think that these dietary restrictions in Leviticus 11, one of the purposes of them were, was to keep the Israelites from associating, from eating with The the pagans that lived around them. That's actually the main function of these unclean laws. As the Bible unfolds, Jews and Gentiles are to be separated from one another. Why? Because the Gentiles are pig farmers who eat pork, and the Jews don't do that, so they're they're separated. God is trying to help them. It's supposed to be helpful to them. It's to influence the the to minimize the influence of the surrounding nations on the Israelites. Some of you know what this is like. You know what it's like to try to follow Jesus Christ faithfully, but have friends who don't share your same commitment? What if, what if you're a young adult and you have a certain lifestyle? You really enjoy your weekends because it's the time you can do what you really want to do at, at the parties you can find. What happens if you become a follower of Jesus Christ and you, your eyes are open to recognize that what goes on in those parties is not edifying and not honoring to God? Yeah. You're not going to be friends anymore. Who are you going to hang out with? Who's going to call you? What are you going to do? Are you going to sit home all night on Friday and Saturday, play Yahtzee with your parents? I mean, what are you going to do? Right? You know about this. So, so God here is setting up this ethnic boundary, this ethnic boundary that is here for an ethical purpose. What is foremost is ethics, not ethnics. You know you have this right when a friend comes up to you and says, hey, your family is so normal compared to mine. You're the only person I know whose kids are not messed up. You've got that separation diet. You figured that out, that influence. Or you're the only person I know who, who seems to be happy but who doesn't sleep around or get drink, drunk or party. Why are you so different? There's this separation. Part of holiness is separation. That same theme of separation actually continues as the Bible unfolds. Jesus Christ, when he comes down, he, when he comes, he breaks down some barriers and he builds new ones, doesn't he? He breaks down the separation between Jews and Gentiles by abolishing these laws. And he breaks down the separation between a holy God and unholy people by absorbing and destroying sin on the cross. And for all those who turn to him, He actually creates a separation. He he moves you out of the kingdom of darkness into his new kingdom. From darkness to light, from death to life, from despair to hope. And our pursuit of holiness is a reveling, it's a delighting in that separation that Jesus Christ has come. The separation he brings. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, this is a, a foreign passage of Scripture for us and, and foreign things to think about. Our hope is, though, Father, that, that this call to be holy is not one that would be foreign to us. God, I pray that as, as we think about, about that, finishing that sentence about areas of our lives where we, we give ourselves a pass, I pray, Father, that you would cultivate wholeness in us that you would enable us to cease from our excuses, live in in full conformity to your good purposes and your high calling. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have filled us with delight by separating us from uh, the consequences, uh, the eternal consequences of our sin. You have, have spared us from the wrath of God because of our confidence in you. Um, make us delightful people when we say no. Grant that we might be discerning and wise in our, in our separation. Father, this, this passage is, is is difficult to apply and to learn from. Help us, help us, O oh God, that we might honor your son, our rescuer who has called us to himself. We thank you for his mercy and his grace, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.